0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Annika Komen. Annika is the founder of the Awakened Leadership Institute and speaks, teaches, and consults with leaders and organizations worldwide, including Intel, Nike, and Save the Children. Her expertise is in organizational and leadership development with an emphasis on mindfulness, presence, innovation, and awakened leadership. What sounds true, Annika is presenting a new online mindfulness program entitled Awake at Work. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Annika and I spoke about what it means to incorporate mindfulness into the workplace, as well as the many benefits of such a program, including a greater sense of ease in the workplace, stimulation of employees creativity and the flow of ideas, and even increased productivity. We also talked about the positive effect on workplace culture that such a program can have, the qualities of a mindful leader, the three core principles of the Awake at Work program, and how to take the first steps to start a mindfulness program at your own place of employment. Here's my conversation with Annika Komen. Anika, we're at a new time, you could say, in our culture where something like meditation, mindfulness, is now being introduced in organizations. People are even calling it a revolution, a mindfulness revolution in business of all things. So I'd love to know, to begin with, how do you understand and see this time that we're in? Mm-hmm.
1: I think one of the markers that we can look at is the acceleration that technology brings to our life and our our work. And people are becoming more overwhelmed and distracted, less connected to themselves, their own creativity and contributions. And I think there's actually a real crisis, a loss of connection to that which is most innately powerful and creative within us and between us in the workplace. And we're seeing that when we look at disengagement and stress and even illness in the workplace. And so I think we're at a point where there's a receptivity and an openness. People are looking for what can we do to actually get back in touch with ourselves, with what's most important, and with one another, and to create and innovate from there. Uh, A lot of times I think people are putting new processes in place, new programs in place, but they're not dealing with the inner awareness of the people that are actually putting those um, responsible for those programs and processes. So something like meditation and mindfulness is actually shifting the consciousness and the awareness and thus bringing a very different result.
0: So it sounds like from your view that part of it is there's a need, Use the word even, a crisis, mm-hmm. that is what is really at the root of this change. Would you put it that way? As you're saying
1: that, I, I actually feel my heart and feel, I, I think of one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Christina Bethel, and she said all the issues that we're dealing with right now are a crisis in presence. And if they, we were to become more present in the moment, more present with ourselves and one another, that the answers to our greatest problems are are right there. And so I do think it is a crisis. I do think that people are not doing very well often in their jobs. I remember stories of people saying, I'm working harder and faster, but at the end of the week I leave and sometimes don't even know if I really contributed anything. And that creates a... I think we all are meaning makers. We all want to make a, contr- a contribution. And when that's failing us, um, it, it really doesn't create uh, a sense of health or well-being.
0: No, I think some people would say meditation or mindfulness is becoming something that's accepted and wanted in organizations because now there's scientific studies that tell us that will be more effective, more productive, and make more money, actually, for our employers. What do you think of that view? Well, I think
1: that that's true. I I do think that one of the reasons there's receptivity to mindfulness practice now is that all the science and the research is demonstrating that there, there are real benefits to it. And when I look at the results that the Awake at Work program gets, there are real benefits as far as um, new ideas, new directions, um, a sense of more flow and ease in the work process. But it also can bring up more challenges because sometimes people get back in touch and they see that things aren't working well. Uh, It might bring forth conflicts that are normally suppressed or um, sometimes people realize that it's not a good fit where they're at. So it's not I wouldn't want to just say that it's only focused on being more productive, making a company more money, that it is um, it, it is true to the practice itself. Whatever we need to become present with um, is what we start to address in mindfulness. And it doesn't matter if we're practicing in a retreat or if we're practicing in a boardroom or a conference room. And once you become present, you start to see You start to see what's in the way. You start to see new avenues of expression. So uh, I think it's both and. And I also see often that it creates a disruption in corporate culture at times. Because if a corporate culture highly values running around being crazy busy and overwhelmed and productive, and they see people starting to take mindful pauses or... Maybe not answer a question. Maybe say, I don't know. And start to interact and relate and work differently. Sometimes that can be a real rub with the status quo. And it really is the people that are at the beginning of bringing this practice into corporate America that are kind of the pioneers, that are the brave ones that are willing to say yes and try these new practices on and see how they start to integrate with the culture or change and shift the culture.
0: No, I quite appreciate what you're saying about meditation and mindfulness potentially bringing up challenges inside someone in their life mm-hmm. that it might bring up material you haven't looked at that is now right there in your face. But now how does that work? You're selling mindfulness training into corporations. I mean, someone like me, I can ask those kinds of questions, you know, doesn't it bring up these difficult issues? But how does it go when you're trying to sell this practice into companies? I'm sure that that's not what they want to hear.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that for me, it continues to be just a part of the integrity of the practice to be able to speak about it in that way. And to know that even if it brings up challenging material, that that backward step into that challenging material, into something that we haven't seen before, is still bringing more aliveness, awareness, and creativity into our lives and into our work. So even though it might feel uncomfortable or be challenging it's still a part of creating the sort of results we want to see and a lot of times when things are just being suppressed there we we might not be having to deal with them directly but they're still having a, a significant negative impact on on the company on mm. the work team on the work product so if we surface those issues at least we can deal with them from a place of intentionality and consciousness whereas before they were just being swept on the rug. And we might have been in the illusion that they weren't creating harm or getting in the way of the sort of results we want, but the reality is they were.
0: Mm. Yeah. Mm. Do you find that corporate leaders are receptive to what you're saying?
1: I think some are and some aren't. Um, Usually what happens is if there is a, a corporate leader or an executive that actually comes in and has an experience For themselves, then they have uh, a very visceral and practical understanding of how the practice works and how we use the practice to meet life and our work as it is, whether that be a challenge or an opportunity. Once they have that experience, they often become advocates for it. In fact, I haven't seen anybody that hasn't, you know, become an advocate after fully participating in the program. But I think there are many executives in leadership that would say, no way, we don't want, we, want, we almost, we don't want to know what we don't know. <laughs> you know, we don't want to see. We don't want people to wake up. If people wake up, they start to become sometimes more empowered and more clear. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's a threat mm-hmm. to the status quo.
0: Now, tell me a little bit about the Awake at Work program. And what I'm interested to know is if you were to summarize the core principles of the program. What those are.
1: Mhm. Well there's there's three, you know, key facets that I think about when I think about the program and how we tap into our highest potential, not only individually but relationally and collectively. And so those three landscapes of starting to cultivate and create a sense of inner mindfulness, of presence, of bringing what is most true and an integrity within us more to the forefront. And sometimes that means dissolving and letting go of a lot that that doesn't belong anymore. So the cultivation of inner awareness, inner presence, and then how that flows into our relationships and how do we create the capacity to be present and tuned in and mindful and take better care of our relationships with other people. Because once we're present with ourselves, we start to have an innate capacity to understand the needs and fears and motivations and intentions of other people. Not to manipulate that, but to be more skillful in how we care for one another, how um, how we call forth the best in one another. And, you know, when I look at organization life, that's something that's often missing. A lot of times there's a lot of competition. Yeah. And so it starts to change our perspective on how we um, participate in a company or in a team. So that inner mindfulness, the relational mindfulness, and then I think about the collaborative or collective mindfulness and how the culture starts to move with greater coherence, greater intentionality, rather than being fragmented. So the program really takes us through those three different landscapes and one builds on the other. Everything starts within and then moves out from there.
0: Talk more about this idea of engagement at work and what it means to inspire a culture of engagement. How does that actually work? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think that's one of the things that I've seen is people putting themselves back in touch with what they want to contribute to the workplace, rather than just being told what they need to do or just being on automatic pilot and going through their tasks, that they start to become more awake to how they wanna show up and how they wanna mold and influence their work and their connections with other people. And I think sometimes we just go to fall asleep to that. We just kind of get in and we have a sense of safety or security, or this is just the way it is. And we become, you know, a bit like a, in a trance or like robotic in our work. So when we use this practice of mindfulness, we start to wake up to what's most important to us our own authenticity, our values, our priorities. And we find ways that we can actually start moving from the inside out. So that, that's really where the engagement is. It, I don't think it comes from benefits that the company's offering or, you know, trips or, you know, prices, all these types of things that are being done. You know, I mean, those are nice, and I think they motivate to a certain degree. But what I believe is most true about our humanity is that we really want to bring forth what is most true and vital and alive within us. And mindfulness puts us back in touch with that and also gives us the courage to show up in that. So I think most of the time what we're afraid of is being judged or criticized or rejected. And when we think about what are we afraid of in that experience, it's usually the discomfort in the body and the emotions that we don't want to experience. So mindfulness also gives us this inner sanctuary where we can hold the discomfort and choose to risk and show up as we truly are.
0: Well, let's talk more about that, because I think that sometimes in a workplace environment, people are afraid that they're going to be punished if they bring forth their ideas. So even if you come in and you help people feel more confident that they can handle their sensations in their body, but they're still in a culture where punishment is doled out. That's not going to create a culture of engagement. So that's part of how I'm curious to understand how helping people learn mindfulness actually translates into these kinds of cultural shifts.
1: hmm mm-hmm. Well, again, I think it's the people that um, are on the forefront of this larger shift that often are the pioneers. they have some sort of innate courage and vision of what's possible that's fueling them and and encouraging them to try different things on and I, I always let people know like you don't want to probably start practicing these things on you know the riskier <laughs> areas of your work life like start small and let that build. try things on, see how they see how they work. And generally what I see, is that people are really actually drawn to these new ways of being. They're more natural to us. And once one person starts to show up in that way or a team, then it kind of starts to gather momentum and creates a kind of a, a company within the company almost. Mm. A, a new culture within the larger culture starts to uh, infuse behavior and... And interactions. I think at best, it's it's great that it's a grassroots movement, and even better if there's leadership um, support and um, embodied practice, that the leaders themselves are actually going through mindfulness training and learning how to apply it
0: in their roles and their work. Now, let's just stay with this for a moment when you say for someone that they could start small. Could you give me an example of that? Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, there's a, there was a story, um, I mean, some of these are very, very simple, but there's a story of somebody early on in the work at Intel, an engineer that was wanting to solve a problem, a technology problem. And just a simple um, decision for him to turn off all of his distractions, bring another engineer into a conference room, to use the mindfulness practice to really settle and focus you know, created a breakthrough in a problem that they've been trying to work on for over a year. And when his boss came back from sabbatical, he immediately came and enrolled in the program, and he was really skeptical. But when I asked him, you know, why are you coming into the program? He said, well, the results speak for themselves. So that was, you know, that was pretty small step, you know, I'm going to turn off all my technology, I'm going to try this practice of focusing my awareness and and really coming into that mindful presence, and I'm going to engage another engineer. Um, And yet, that one small decision created a breakthrough and an opening, and it also drew other people into the practice. So I think once people see that it has a direct impact and a direct positive impact on people's work and relationships and the results they're getting that starts to create more interest and momentum around it.
0: So starting with the basics, mm-hmm. if you are to go into an organization and right at the very beginning introduce mindfulness training, how do you do it? How do you frame it? What do you teach people?
1: hmm mm-hmm. Well, I really start with the basics and that it really is about um, bringing ourselves fully present in the moment instead of being you know, divided and having our attention divided across multiple things and not really being fully here for any one of them. And I think people are hungry for that. It's really stressful when we have our attention divided and we're that distracted. So teaching people how to bring themselves fully present in the moment, how to kind of reel their attention back in to the breath, to the body, and learn how to pause. I mean, I really think that if we had just more mindful pauses throughout our day where we stopped, recollected ourselves, felt our body and our breath, and got back in touch, and then proceeded, even that small of an intervention shifts the awareness and the consciousness with which we're moving and relating and interacting in our workday. So, really, it starts with that. It starts with taking ourselves off of automatic pilot, reeling ourselves back into the moment, connecting with our breath and body, and allowing that awareness to infuse how we're behaving, interacting, and communicating.
0: So, let's talk about that. So, it's one thing for me to practice mindfulness by myself or with a group, but my eyes are closed. I'm not relating to anybody mm-hmm. else. Now I'm trying to bring mindfulness into, let's say, a meeting. Mm -hmm. How do you help people do this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I remember one story that comes
1: to mind about a a, um, gentleman that was filling in in a meeting for his boss. And... The the person running the meeting came in, and they were executives, and he was not an executive, but he was filling in for for one of them. And he realized soon that they were going around the room doing these top high-level report outs, and he just started to freak out, and his mind was going all over the place and anxiety rushing through. And with his eyes open, he just took some deep breaths and brought his awareness down to the anxiety and the sensations in his belly and started to breathe and and kind of regulate his emotion. And when it came to him to speak, it was his turn to speak, he said that it was all right there. The clarity and the coherence and what what he needed to say just came flowing through. And that might seem counterintuitive, but if he would have stayed kind of bypassing the body sensations and the anxiety and just tried to... Get some coherence in his thoughts, I'm guessing that he wouldn't have come through so clear and powerful. But because he uses practice, he could settle and meet what was happening in the moment and bring greater coherence into what he spoke. And he was, you know, kind of amazed at how well the practice worked. So it, it really is when we start to train um, ourselves to be able to meet what's happening. With awareness and to start to regulate with our breath, that is in many ways the greatest preparation we have to meet whatever's happening in the moment. And because of the connection between the body and the heart and the mind, um, we increase coherence in our cognitive functioning. So we, you know, we become smarter when we're using this practice, actually.
0: It's very interesting to me that you're using this word coherence. So mm-hmm. tell me more about that, what mm-hmm. you mean by that. mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: I think there are times, and and you probably can even remember times like this too, that when we're speaking in ways that are disconnected and we can't really bring through a deeper intelligence or a deeper wisdom or a clear thought, a lot of times I think that's when we're up in our heads and we're not more deeply rooted in our hearts and our bodies and all the different intelligence centers that we have access to. So when I think of coherence, I think of Firing on all c- cylinders that the intelligence in the body, in the gut brain, in the heart brain, in the head brain are all integrating and working together. And we become smarter. We bring forth more um, insight and ideas when we're connected at that level.
0: No, I, I know I may sound like I'm repeating myself, but I want to circle back to something because I'm imagining a listener who says, you know, if I were actually in coherence with my heart and my gut, and I voiced what was going on for me in the meeting in a truthful way, I bet you I'd be fired on the spot. <laughs> you know, the culture I'm in, the company I work for, doesn't actually want to hear what my heart has to say, actually. yeah. And so how do we help that person?
1: Well, I think that's a reality. And I don't want to downplay that truth. And I think that comes back to personal integrity and your personal choice about what your priorities are. Is it more important that you are showing up and expressing that in the meeting? Or is it more important to you that you keep your job and don't, don't rock the boat? Or is there some sort of middle ground that you can start to navigate with? Um, I think there are choice points in each moment. And there's something about... Being connected at this level, that I think oftentimes we find ways to navigate those challenging situations outside of our kind of rational mind. And I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, I think I was in my 20s and I had been doing this practice at this time and I was facilitating a merger and acquisition between a couple companies in Seattle. And it was a Midwestern company that was a- acquiring a Seattle company. And I was sitting there with a the CEO and two vice presidents, much older than me. The CEO was former military guy and very sure of himself, very confident. And he was going on and on talking about how nothing was going to change how oh, they would still have complete autonomy and they were going to be able to run their own ship and saying all these things. And the two vice presidents in the room were like nodding their heads in agreement. And the more that the CEO spoke, the greater knot I had in my belly. And I was aware that if we speak this to employees, they're not going to believe this because this isn't really how it's going to happen. And so rather than going to my mind and starting to argue with him or convince him of something, I actually started with my body awareness. And I said, I just want to say that as I'm hearing you speak, I've got this knot in my belly. And I'm afraid that the employees aren't going to believe that. I I think that they're going to think that things are going to change. And in fact, they probably will. And I just want to bring that up because I really think it's important you know, if we want to retain the, com- the employees, that we tell them the truth. And at that moment, there was this awareness in the room. And the one of the vice presidents looked and he's like, yeah, I've got that not too. And it completely changed the conversation um, and how we were communicating with one another and what got communicated out. Uh, so it really, it really is a personal choice point, you know. And that moment, that felt like what I had to say. And I often have those experiences in my life. But each person is a little bit different.
0: I think it would be interesting to make a little bit more explicit what you think is going on as somebody learns the practice of mindfulness and starts practicing on a regular basis. How they then learn the skills of bringing that into communication. It seems like there's some steps there that have to happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the first relationship, and that's why we start with the inner inner mindfulness, is starting to have a relationship with this vehicle that we are and all these different centers of intelligence and awareness and insight. And so we're the first audience um, of receiving that deeper knowing or intuition or wisdom. And as we start to learn ourselves and kind of test and put some of those insights and awarenesses into play just in our own work, then we start to gain, I think, confidence and courage and a a discernment muscle on how we can start to bring those into communication with other people. And in the beginning, you know, it might be clunky. And so starting in relationships and in scenarios that we can practice with people and that's what's really great about forming these groups inside of companies that are practicing together. They can start relate, relating to one another in those ways. In fact, I recently, uh, at a company down in California, had a team that was in part of the larger group. And one day they were having some problems on the team, and the team had come to the leader. And the leader said, well, you're all in the mindfulness program. So what I would like is you to you go and use your skills and see what you come up with, work it out together. And they went and did that. And it's just continued to grow for that team that now that they have kind of a, a baseline, foundational set of practices and principles and agreements and how they're going to be with one another, they can they can practice with one another as it relates to the work. So even though we talk about it as a revolution and it has a lot of energy out in the world and sometimes a lot of hype, I would say. um, And I can feel the tenderness in the truth. And what I'm going to say is that it's a slow process. It's not overnight. And sometimes companies want those kind of quick fixes. And I don't believe that's what we're talking about with this, this sort of work, that it's It's something that we continue to cultivate within ourselves and within our relationships and how that applies in our workplace. And we're in a learning mode right now. We don't know how all this is going to work. We see really positive results, but there's some challenges that it brings forward too. And the great thing is, is that we can use this practice to meet it all.
0: Now when you talk about this interpersonal mindfulness mm-hmm. if you will when we're now communicating from this felt sense of what our body needs to express mm-hmm. it's one thing to be on a team and sharing with our coworkers and it's another thing to be able to sit down with your manager or your boss and be able to talk about what's really on your mind and I notice that's where a lot of people get all effed uh, uh, mm-hmm. up, for lack of a better way of right. putting it. And, you know, it brings up a lot of early wounding for mm-hmm. a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what I wonder is, how does that kind of material get addressed? Is it even appropriate for that kind of material to be addressed in corporate life? And yet, if it's not, it's a true elephant if you will, in the room. I mean, the, how far mm-hmm. can the person go mm-hmm. if that early sense of, you know, these parental figures, mm-hmm. uh, you know, slammed me down for speaking up? I'm certainly not going to here.
1: Right, right, right. One of the sessions in the program that has the most energy when we talk about it is the one that is based on Dr. Brene Brown's work around vulnerability and shame, and especially the kind of elephant of shame. Um, as I believe many of organi- our organizations are operating from a shame basis of never enough, never good enough. And that that will trigger the areas within us that run that sort of dialogue. And I think mm-hmm. we all have it to mm-hmm. some degree or another. And what I've seen as soon as that elephant gets named in a program with an environment, you know, people feel in some ways... Um, I think, affirmed and somewhat liberated that, you know, that the voices of not good enough, never enough um, that usually constrict and shut us down and and shut down uh, that inner voice or our truth or our greatest creativity, we start to understand those mechanisms and how to work with them. Um, And, there, you know, my experience personally is they continue to be there. They just don't have the power over me from stepping. So we start to learn to step beyond the voice that has stopped us. But the first step is really starting to even bring it into awareness because a lot of times we're just operating with that voice, very, you know, suppressed.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the mindful leader, the leader who can potentially make great changes in an organization, throughout the whole organization. And I'm curious if you were to paint a picture for me of a mindful leader, what Mm -hmm. that picture would look like. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, the first step is, I think, a a mindful leader is somebody that's connect. um, The first uh, thing that comes to mind is a leader that is committed to their own Mindful awareness and presence, that they have their own practice and that it's a priority to them, that they're cultivating the capacity to be aware of not only themselves, but the greater relational field in the organization and also the greater picture of the, the culture and the environment that they're you know operating within. And so the capacity to develop that sort of mindfulness across those different levels, and a commitment to that—that that they see that in many ways, that's their first and foremost priority. Because I remember this quote, or somebody saying that, you know, a leader asked John Kabat-Zinn, you know, what is mindfulness, and he said, you know, paying attention on purpose. And the leader said, and, the, and John said, you know, what? What is leadership? And he said, well, paying attention on purpose. And so many leaders I see now are just being driven probably by that greater influence of shame of never good enough. So constantly striving, overwhelmed, busy, making decisions without really collecting themselves and becoming aware. So that commitment feels like a very important piece of it. The second piece for me is about transparency. And you were starting to talk about that in you know, the kind of conversations we can have with one another and in our teams and with our managers. And I think one of the greatest things that could heal an organization and liberate its creativity and genius and, you know, and in, in really motivate more engagement is starting to have leaders that can be really transparent of what's going on, of their own fears and insecurities, about their own desires and um, hopes and insights, but a, a real... You know, dropping of the mask. So I think so often that's what's happening in our organizations. We're covering up so much. We're relating mask to mask and we're losing engagement. We're losing vitality. We're losing the creativity that some of that more truthful and, yeah, mucky, (laughs) um, you know, fertilizer and grist for the mill or whatever you might call that. You know, so we're becoming, you know, one dimensional or one sided. And so somebody that is willing to talk about their own fears, their own shame, their own inner life as it's as it's showing up in the workplace, and I'm not talking about let's just bring all of our you know childhood baggage or our personal life baggage into work and start using that as a venue to talk about it. But we've got plenty of material in the workplace to start bringing more transparency to this
0: now when you were describing this mindful leader, you said that this person is paying attention to their own inner mindfulness mm-hmm. process, but also the relational field, I mm-hmm. believe that's the term mm-hmm. you used, mm-hmm. of the organization. Tell me what you mean by that.
1: Yeah, being able to pay attention to the to how people are doing in the organization, to how they're relating, to where the blocks in communication might be, to where power struggles might be, being able to have their pulse on Um not just the business product and the result, but the core relational processes and health of an organization that are creating that. So a lot of times I don't think they're attending to that piece of the work at all.
0: Now, I'm also interested to hear you say a little bit more about this issue of shame, of this sense of never being enough, because I do think this is tremendously pervasive. Whether it's someone who's leading an organization who's saying, you know, we have to grow, 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 it's never enough, it's never enough, mm-hmm. we haven't hit our targets yet, or it's just an individual who doesn't feel good enough. And I'm curious to know, from your own experience, what heals that sense of never enough? Hmm.
1: This has been something that has been really significant in my own life. Um, starting to become aware of how shame and that message of not good enough has impacted me. And I remember several years ago, somebody said, you should really check into, you know, Brené's work. And I was like, oh, shame. I mean, I was classic. Oh, I don't have shame. I think you have that issue, but I don't think I do. I was in, you know, denial of how that was impacting my life. And so I think the first part of healing that is starting to have an honest dialogue with ourselves and even making an inquiry, even if you think that that isn't impacting you or your relationships, but even to take a moment and look and make an honest inquiry into how might shame and that voice of not good enough be showing up. For me, uh, it operated in a couple of different ways. One, in my early um, adulthood, it was filled with striving and pushing and forcing and achieving and being somewhat disconnected to my own well-being and the other priorities in my life, and oftentimes, you know, making sacrifices of other people's well-being because of that focus. I was gonna outrun that voice. I was gonna out-achieve it. And then as I started to become more aware and more present, I got to see another face of it, which was, you know, how it kept me from acting on what was most true and showing up more vulnerably in that whether that be in my relationships or bringing something through that was really valuable to me and expressing it in my work. So, bringing it out of the darkness and the secrecy and the silence is a part of it and then starting to cultivate a sense of kindness and compassion. Like we have to be able to meet that and hold it with awareness. And when we can do that, so that might look like, you know, when the flash of you know, heat comes across your face and the throat constricts and you feel this sinking feeling and this fear of, you know, doing something wrong or bad or not good enough, that you can actually identify that that's what's happening and take a breath and start to bring that loving awareness to the experience. And from that place, you still might be feeling those emotions. You might be having those thoughts but they're not stopping you from taking that next step and showing up. And then I think as we bring more and more awareness and the more that we step beyond, that sometimes that voice gets quieter. And yet sometimes when I think we're really on our edge and really showing up, whether starting a new relationship or putting a new idea or launching a new business, sometimes when we're really up to something good and we're right on track, that's when the voice even gets louder. So it's, for me at least, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a constant companion in my practice.
0: Hmm. I'm curious, Annika, because you call your program Awake at Work. And I've been doing for Sounds True a whole 30th anniversary series called Waking Up, What Does It Really Mean?, And in that series, I'm talking to spiritual teachers about awakening. What is spiritual awakening? So I have a couple questions about this in Mm -hmm. relationship to bringing this kind of training into the corporate world. So my first question is, do you talk about spirituality at all, or are you able to present these deep ideas and insights without getting into the territory of quote-unquote spirituality explicitly?
1: Yeah, uh, I don't explicitly talk about spirituality, but I remember, you know, one example of this was, I think we were um, talking about the concept of not being our thoughts and our emotions and our sensations. And I remember there was this engineer in the program that just shot out of his chair and he said, well, if I'm not my thoughts and I'm not my emotions, who am I? And, you know, I remember looking back at him and saying, you know, I can't tell you that, but you can make that inquiry. And he went into that inquiry of, who am I? Which starts to lead someone down the path to looking at their true nature. But I don't explicitly bring it forth in a spiritual context. But what I have seen is that those individuals that start to wake up to, I would say, more of the truth of who they are, often will come and seek me out for one-on-one coaching and and discussions about that. But really, it it isn't something that is, you know, inherent within the program, but it's inherent within the practice.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to ask you the question that I've been asking all of these different spiritual teachers in this series, which is, what does waking up, spiritual awakening, and I'll use that word myself here, even though I realize you don't when you bring Awake at Work to companies, mm-hmm. but... What is spiritual awakening to you? What is that? This is really funny time to ask me this
1: question because I think that if you asked me six months ago, I might have had a lot of things to say about it. But now it feels more and more like I don't know. I don't really know what that really is. I mean, I can say things that I've heard and that I've experienced, but... In many ways, it feels as simple as what mindfulness teaches us. It's being here in this moment, um, awake, aware, paying attention. You know, I see that part of what my experience is is that the ways that I identify myself, roles, um, attributes, qualities, that that's still there. But that what moves me more strongly is that background presence or intelligence. But I don't consider myself awake. You know, I, I'm i in touch with that. Um, but I'm also in touch with the parts of me that are very identified and caught as well. So I think in some ways, awakening in this practice of mindfulness that the the power of how we get caught and and identified loses some of its oomph, and the greater awareness, the greater presence takes hold and starts to move us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but I don't know.
0: <laughs> no, I asked you if you could give a broad brushstrokes of the mindful leader, and that was very mm-hmm. helpful. And mm-hmm. now I'd love to know if you were going to... Paint me a picture of what the mindful workplace, what it looks like. You go into a workplace, and this is a workplace that's really dedicated itself to bringing mindfulness, bringing presence into the workplace. What does it look like? How does it feel?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, the first thing that comes into my awareness as you ask that question and I haven't really ever answered this out loud, but I think that there's a a sense of a strong foundation, a trustworthy foundation, that as soon as you walk through the doors, you can feel how the practice of mindfulness brings you into that calm, clear, balanced state. So there's a foundation of integrity and awareness, and it's palpable. And yet from that place... All of this kind of organic creativity—that I can't—I can't even name an organization today that I can think of that I, I've had that experience within. But out of that foundation, you know, ideas and insights and a very organic um, flow to inspiration is allowed to happen. So. Right now, a lot of times we have people that are assigned to innovation or teams that are assigned to creating certain breakthroughs or products. And I see that some of those divisions have really dissolved and there's a greater flow of synergy and ideas and movement. And, and that takes a trustworthiness because, you know, the, the, the way that we do it now is highly structured and, and, and controlled, um, but I think one of the other pieces of a mindful organization was that the, the coherent intention, the stated purpose of why the organization exists is so strong and so kind of infused in, into everything that that is what creates that, you know, safety or the boundaries within which all this creativity can blossom. So, I think we're going to see much more dynamic organization, much greater inflow of ideas arising from all parts of the company, a receptivity to actually listen to one another, to be generative. So when an idea comes forward from somebody, it's caught and it's understood and it's built on, and it's you know it's it's just kind of this um, flow and respect and um, I see a lot more joy and well-being. And it doesn't feel like we're that far away on some days. And then on other days, it feels like to to release that sort of control, (laughs) which I think a lot of organizations are working under, um, does
0: does, does require a sense of courage. Tell me more about that. What do you mean? Where's the courage? What courage? Well, I think the courage to experiment
1: with some new ways instead of trying to manage people and manage innovation and manage the organization, if you set a strong foundation of mindful awareness with a clear, coherent intention of what the organization's wanting to create and and the enough structure to actually support people's creativity, you know, there's a, a certain amount of letting go of control and not um, forcing you know, structures or timelines or deadlines onto creativity and innovation, allowing um, the space for something much greater to arise in the people and the teams within the organization.
0: You know, I want to circle back around in some ways to where we started our conversation. And you know, for me as a organizational leader, I'm interested in sounds true, becoming a mindful organization, an organization of presence, no matter Mm -hmm. what, Mm -hmm. whether it makes us more money, or it costs us money, actually. For me, it's a value in and of itself. But I don't know how many business leaders think that way. My understanding is that most corporate leaders, when they look at bringing a program like Awake at Work, bringing mindfulness into their organization. They're asking themselves, will I get a return on investment in terms of cash, not in terms of soul blossoming or people are collaborating better, but does it turn into money or not? I want to know. Give me the numbers. So how, how do you talk to that kind of person who says, tell me, is this going to make me more money?
1: You know when you're saying this, and and I will answer your question, but I think that in some ways, that whole kind of corporate mantra of what's the return on investment is one of those trances that we've got into. And I don't even know if the individuals that are asking the questions often really even care about that as much as they as much as the kind of corporate slogan mm-hmm. <laughs> might make you think. i think I think oftentimes, people, we're all human and we all have that hunger to become more connected. I, I really believe that's true, that it's an innate impulse. And so I think a lot of times when I'm talking to organizations, we can give enough data and enough feedback on the sort of results that are possible through engaging this program. But I'm also talking to the human being and the person that actually has that hunger themselves for a different experience in their work or if not in their work, in their family life. There's not a person that has come into the program that doesn't have some area of their life that is causing them suffering and that they would like to bring more awareness to and, and bring greater well-being to. Every single person has that, whether it's being a different relationship with their children or their spouse or their coworker or wanting to get over the anxiety of speaking in public so they can bring more ideas forward. I mean, everybody has something. And so tapping into that, I think, really speaks to people. And, you know, the reality is that it is, uh, the practice itself does help people become more productive, more focused, oftentimes more inspired. So it's, you know, it it does does result in those sort of benefits as well.
0: Okay, Annika, just two more questions okay. for you. Let's say someone's listening and their experience is, look, I don't know what's going to happen in my business. I don't think they're going to you know, spend the money for a program like Awake at Work or a mindfulness training. But I want to be part of what Anika pointed to, this grassroots revolution that can happen inside companies. I myself have a meditation practice. How do I go about this? How do I have a grassroots launch within Mm -hmm. my company Mm -hmm. yeah
1: i like what you said about the person already having their practice because i think that's the first step you know sometimes we can get excited and say oh i want to bring a program in but we ourselves haven't even you know started our own practice so i think that's a great place to begin and if you have and you want to include other people uh i always say take the first step you know See if there are other people in the organization that want to do a lunchtime meditation or something in the morning or find some time during the week or the month that you can start to offer something to other people. And and every company that I've seen this happen in, you know, there's usually a large, you know, group of people that are just hungry and ready and they begin. And once they begin, then other people join them. And then oftentimes, you know, that results in the organization deciding to pilot a program like Awake at Work. Um, There are also other ways. The program that we're working on with Sounds True, Um, the online program is another great way to start. People can, wherever they're at in the organization, can start a practice on their own and start to see how that practice can help them in their job. And once they have that experience, then maybe taking the next step to engage with other people.
0: Okay, and here's my final question. As you know, this program is called Insights at the Edge. And I'm always curious to know what someone's growing edge is, particularly in relationship to Awake at Work and what you're doing, but also just in your life. What would you say is your edge, Annika? Mm, mm, Perfect.
1: I have an answer to this. (laughs) For me, it really is about expanding my capacity for joy and for taking in the good. I have a capacity for working hard and looking at my shadow and really mucking around and doing a lot of personal growth work. And I noticed that it's actually more challenging for me to allow things to be good, to take in new possibilities and opportunities and pleasure. So. That's my edge right now that I'm working on, taking in the good.
0: Well, I think you can definitely take in the good of this interview. It was great (laughs) to talk to you. I think Mm -hmm. you've shared really some important ideas and are one of those pioneers Mm -hmm. that are starting to bring really the depth of what mindfulness and meditation can offer with this emphasis on the interpersonal components Mm -hmm. and the kinds of changes that can happen not just within an individual, but within groups. It's wonderful work, Annika. Mm. Thank you so much.
1: Mm. Thank you, Tammy.
0: Annika Komen has created, with Sounds True, a new online training program, both for individuals and organizations. It's called Awake at Work, a mindfulness based program to awaken creative genius and inspire a culture of engagement and excellence. Again, thanks, Annika. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.